Hello everyone and welcome again to Evangelion, Interpreting Scripture and Life. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians and we've got to that section of the letter where Paul starts to argue in a slightly different stylistic fashion. Now it's one thing to argue a case principally on the interpretation of data when the subject matter of the debate is something in which people are personally invested. The argument can never just be coldly dispassionate. In Aristotle's great work of rhetoric, one of the categories of what he called artificial evidence, that is the source of proofs that you use to win an argument, in Greek is called pathos. And there's lots of English words which we derive from that etymological root. Pathos is the emotion that an audience feels as a result of your words, the aim of which is to create in them a favourable state of mind towards you and your arguments, and an unfavourable one towards your opponents and their arguments. So after having depicted for the Galatian Gentiles that they did not receive the Spirit through doing the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, and that faith had two key objectives, that is, bringing them to life from the deadness of sin and estrangement from God, and setting them free from slavery, Paul now attempts another way of winning the Gentiles in Galatia over. He takes them back to when he first arrived in Galatia, and how and why it was he landed there in the first place, and the shared community spirit they enjoyed when he told them about the risen Christ. There have, of course, been moments in the letter where Paul speaks with a similar sense of emotional burden. I think instantly of chapter 1, verse 6, and his sheer surprise that the Galatian Gentiles could so quickly be enticed by an alternative form of the gospel. However, what we see in chapter 4, verses 12 to 20, is a much greater outpouring of love and disappointment, of hope and despair, and an appeal to shared memories. Now, whilst it's tempting to think of Paul simply as a skilled rhetorician, a brilliant theologian and a sophisticated debater, we ought never to forget that in his heart of hearts, Paul is a concerned pastor and here he's weighed down by a sense of betrayal. Here's what we read in Galatians 4 from verses 12 to 20. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, but not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labour until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. One thing that's not completely clear in Galatians is just how far the Galatian Gentiles had gone in any quest to actually embrace Jewish ritual practice. Had any of them actually been circumcised? Now my guess is probably not, based on a couple of passages 
in Galatians 5. However, it does seem that they had, at least some of them, been intellectually persuaded. In chapter 4, verse 12 here, Paul's appeal is that the Galatians become like him and reciprocate the fact that he's become like them. Now, presumably, he means become like him and reacquaint themselves with the law-independent gospel that he'd originally preached in Galatia. For he had become like them insofar as he, unlike Peter and Barnabas and some of the other Jews in the Antioch incident in 2.11 through 14, he happily ate with Gentiles. He became like them. His lifestyle changed somewhat to match a more Gentile lifestyle. We read that that's part of Paul's ministry strategy in 1 Corinthians 9. It's often referred to in the scholarship as adaptability. But then in verse 13, we get the first hint of how Paul first encountered these Galatian Gentiles. He said that it was because of what, in the translation I just read, was a bodily illness. Literally translated, it says a weakness of the flesh or a sickness of the flesh. And that's why he remained in Galatia. Presumably then, Paul was ill in some way, shape or form. And although Paul says nothing to specify the nature of his illness, as you can imagine, scholarly speculation has gone into hyperdrive over this somewhat tantalising phrase. Many have been quick to notice the similarity between Galatians 4.13 and 2 Corinthians 12.7 and concluded that whatever this illness Paul was suffering should be acquainted to his so-called thorn in the flesh. Indeed, it's on the basis of what Paul says in verse 15 that many have concluded that this thorn in the flesh he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 was some kind of eye disease, ophthalmia, cataracts, or possibly glaucoma. There are scattered bits of evidence which might reinforce that picture, not least of all Luke's testimony that Paul was blind for three days after the Damascus Road incident. If he had been blind for three days, it's at least remotely possible that there were lingering effects of that blindness. Luke tells us that there was a, a flashing light that may in some way have hampered Paul's eyes. We may also consider Paul's own testimony in Galatians 6 verse 11, where it seems he grabs the pen from the secretary and signs the letter off, which seems to have been his custom. And notice he says in Galatians 6 11 that he writes in very large letters, again possibly suggesting that his eyesight was failing. And it's quite possible that this was the distinguishing mark in all of his letters. He mentions something similar in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 17. Others are content to simply see this weakness of the flesh as some physical manifestation of the persecution or violence that Paul had endured during his ministry career. Fortunately, the interpretation of the letter and even this section of it doesn't require us to come down on any one side of this debate with any conviction. The rhetorical point is perfectly clear, as spelled out in verse 14. The Galatians didn't treat Paul with contempt because of this illness. Think back, if you will, to the question the apostles asked Jesus when they encountered the blind man in John 9. They wanted to know who had sinned to make this man blind. Was it him or his parents? Now, their question might have sounded odd to modern ears, but it was very typical in ancient thought, and indeed even in some strands of modern thought, to assume that any kind of physical ailment was divine punishment for some crime or sin. As such, it was no small thing that the Galatians did not turn Paul away. Not only did the ancients assume that the gods would often inflict people with disease for punishment for their crimes, they also believed that anyone who sympathised with the afflicted could also incur the wrath of the gods. 
I'm reminded of the Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Zeus had given the gift of prophecy to King Phineas, but he'd used it to reveal the gods' secrets to men. And so Zeus punished him by placing him on an island full of these luscious delicacies. But every time Phineas sat down to eat, winged demons called harpies came and stole the food away from him. When Jason and his band of men arrived on the island, they overcame the harpies and Zeus was furious with Jason. So then, the apostle wasn't rejected by the Galatian Gentiles. They didn't treat his illness as some punishment for sin, which might then turn around and cause problems for them. And as such, the apostle clearly had a natural affection for these Gentiles who took in this Jewish stranger and cared for him. The emotion pours through Paul's words here. They didn't just look after him. They received him like he was a divine messenger, indeed, as if he was Jesus himself. So the question of verse 15 then is Paul's way of saying, well, what on earth happened? How is it that they had turned on him? Had he suddenly become their enemy because he'd spoken honestly with them? Now, it's not completely clear what Paul's implying here when he says he became an enemy on the basis of what he had originally preached. Um, is it the case that he'd become their enemy because he preached the truth to them in the first place? Or is he their enemy now because he's pulling them up for being enticed by the rival message? Well, I think the net effect is the same. The true gospel was to believe in the risen Christ, and as we'll see in the next chapter, to live according to the Spirit. Was Paul somehow against the Gentiles in Galatia for telling them this? With his gospel truly defective and incomplete, as his opponents were probably suggesting, had he been dishonest about the place of the law of Moses? Of course, in bringing up how well they had treated him, again, Paul's rhetorical objective here is clear. How could someone so grateful for the Galatians' kindness try to deceive them with a false gospel? Bear in mind, of course, chapters 3 verses 2 to 5, because not only had the Galatian Gentiles heard the gospel from Paul and believed, but they had experienced the miracles of the Spirit. The Spirit's miracles were proof positive that the gospel that Paul had preached was an authentic one. So then in verses 17 to 18, Paul turns his attention to the opponents themselves. Now we don't learn much about the um, opponents, and of course we only can reconstruct their arguments based on what we know that Paul said. Uh, the scholar John Barclay warns New Testament scholars against uh, a careless form of what he calls mirror reading, which is what we are ultimately forced to do. We don't know how Paul's opponents argued. We try to reconstruct their arguments based on Paul's responses. That, of course, um, can tell us something it can help us go so far but we should be careful about how we speculate when it comes to filling in the blanks. We know also from chapter 5 verse 10 that Paul probably doesn't know these opponents personally. However, from their actions, he assumed something very interesting. These false proclaimers, according to verse 17, were clearly zealous to win the Galatian Gentiles over, but according to Paul, they had a sinister ulterior motive to shut the Gentiles out so that the Gentiles would be zealous for them. Now, I think the point that Paul is making here is actually a very crucial one, and it relates to this entire question of Gentile induction into the people of God. 
Israel's prophets generally didn't deny that the Gentiles would have a place in the divine economy. There is one apocryphal work called the Book of Jubilees where the author decides that in fact that the messianic age would spell the destruction of the Gentiles, but that was a very limited view. Most Jews believed that the Gentiles would have some place in the great things that God was doing. Beautiful passages spoke about the times when Gentiles would come to God. In Isaiah chapter 2, we read from verse 2, Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and a word from the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. So Isaiah talks about the nations streaming to the mountain of God. Zechariah writes in Zechariah 8 from verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favour of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, as was apparent from the Jerusalem council, you can uh, see this in Acts 15, verse 1 and verse 5, there wasn't clarity about exactly how the Gentiles would come into the people of God. It might be true that they would become the people of God in, 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 at some time and in some way, but how that would happen was somewhat murky, as the debates in Acts 15 and even here in Galatians seem to suggest. Would they come in as Gentiles who were in some way subordinate to the believing Jews? Would they come in as Gentiles who would first need to convert to Judaism? Or would they come in as equal members with the believing Jews without having to convert to Judaism? Well, it's fairly clear which position Paul held to. It's the last of these that I mentioned. Paul believed that Gentiles could be full members of the people of God on equal footing with Christian Jews without first having to embrace Judaism. What Paul outlines in Galatians 4.17 might be an alternative position. Perhaps these infiltrating teachers wanted the Galatian Gentiles to convert precisely so they would look up to the Jewish members of the community as their superiors. As Paul outlines in verse 18, zeal is all very well as long as it's rightly motivated. And this is something Paul alludes to in a number of places. It's great to be zealous, but if your zealousness um, is not based on knowledge and doesn't help people and doesn't help to love people, then it's compromised. Once more, we hear the affection in Paul's voice in verse 19 when he calls the Galatians, my children. And the maternal image that Paul uses to describe his vexation is a little ghastly and somewhat challenging. I'm again in the pains of childbirth, he says. Imagine feeling labour pains for a child that you've already delivered. Needless to say, only female listeners will relate to this metaphor. However, this is exactly how hard Paul was feeling this pain. The pain until, he says, Christ is formed in the Galatians. 
This is probably another maturity metaphor. Paul often talks about people being in Christ, but only rarely talks about Christ being formed in them. My guess is that the two probably go hand in hand. Part of the pain is no doubt linked to the fact that Paul wasn't actually there, and sending a letter was the closest thing he could do. And as he closes the section in verse 20, he wishes he could be there in person, for he'd probably speak in person more softly than he speaks through letters. Indeed, according to 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10, this was typical of Paul. He seemed to have a much more powerful presence in letters and in written communications than he did in speech face to face. And he says here in 4.18 that he would change his tone. Uh, or 4.20 rather, that he would change his tone. What may come through the pages of Galatians is certainly a sense of the frustration and even fury that Paul felt because of how his Galatian converts were turning their backs on the gospel. But once more, even this frustration and fury that we sometimes sense as we read Galatians was simply born out of the love of a concerned pastor. One thing I'll probably never be accused of being is an emotional person. In all honesty, I oscillate sometimes between whether or not that's a good thing. What seems to me to be universally true, however, is that there's always an emotional component to honesty. Truth and facts are not the same thing. And no one should ever become your enemy because they tell you the truth. But as human beings, we often prefer convenient lies and convenient half-truths to inconvenient truths. Ephesians 4.15 urges people to speak the truth lovingly, and I've no doubt that's precisely what Paul's trying to achieve here. But as is often the case, the speaking of the truth in love and receiving the truth in love can sometimes be an uphill struggle. This is why the author of the book of Proverbs urges that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, Proverbs 27 verse 6. Actually, the author of Proverbs has lots to say about this. In Proverbs 15 verse 2, the author writes that the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. That we speak the truth and how we speak the truth are both important components of conveying the truth. But in all cases, truth is interpreted fact. The mere presentation of facts will not necessarily lead to a meeting of minds. That requires so much more, as Paul's emotional appeal makes quite clear. In our own dealings, We ought to strive then to be wise speakers of truth and also wise recipients of truth. As Paul will make clear in the next chapter, love is the context within which any instruction has its rightful place. Without love, there can be no truth. Where there's love, there's trust, and wounds from a friend can be trusted.